Hello, and welcome to another episode of Herbs Herbarium. I'm your host, Caroline Herb, and today we are going to be talking about earthworms. And the majority, uh, all of the information, actually, that I used for this is coming from a book that I got. I actually bought this the same time that I bought the last book that I used, um, The Hidden Life of Trees. And originally, I thought that I was going to be, like, super, super obsessed with The Hidden Life of Trees. Um, but then I decided to read this book first, and I couldn't put it down, and I was really, really obsessed with it. It is called The Earth Moved on the Remarkable Achievements of Earthworms by Amy Stewart. And, yeah, it's a really, really good book. I would recommend it. Um, especially if you think you might be interested in, um, worm composting, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. Um, so to start this off, I wanted to use a quote that she included in the book. Um, this is the earthworm's most powerful secret, one that even Darwin didn't fully grasp. The earthworm, far from being one of the smallest and weakest creatures, is actually one of the largest beings in its world, its underground society. In that place, it is an elephant, a whale, a giant. So last week, we were talking about maybe thinking about trees in a different way, and now today, maybe you'll feel different ways about earthworms. Okay, so to start off, let's go through some slightly more sciencey things. Um, so there's about three main ecological groups of worms. Now, these are not taxonomic groups, so that means like they're not broken up by family or anything like that. This is just completely, so this doesn't have to do with their genetics. This is just has to kind of do more with their lifestyles. Um, so the first one that we have, I truthfully, I'm not 100% sure how it's pronounced. I think it might be... And anisic, and uh, that's what I'm gonna go with. Anisic, something like that. Um, but so these guys are dig permanent vertical burrows, so they're not really branching off um, to the side, so they're just going up and down. Um, usually, um, so if you ever notice on the ground when you're looking around, sometimes you'll see piles of what looks to be little, like teeny tiny, bubbly clumps of dirt, and that's worm poop, um, also known as worm castings. So these guys, the anisic worms, will cast on the surface and they make little their little piles around the entrances to their burrows. Um, and usually these worms are larger than um, the other different types of worms that we'll talk about in a second. Um, and these guys, because they kind of stay a little bit more in um, the soil, they will eat they eat some soil, and they'll also eat dead leaves and decay. And yeah, their soil castings are really good because they also let in uh, air and water, which aids to the um, health of the soil. Okay, so now the second group we're going to talk about, I think, is called epigeic. And these are the ones that they rather, they don't burrow, so they actually live more on the surface within the leaf litter um, and they thus eat the forest litter and these guys are usually pretty tiny so we don't see them oh and by the way some little vocab for everybody the 
inner walls of worm burrows are called the drylosphere, and they are rich in fungal and bacterial growth. And we'll talk a little bit more about fungi and bacteria and their interactions with worms in a little bit as well. Okay, so now the third group that I'm going to talk about is endogeic, um, and these guys don't really come to the surface at all. Um, they are predominantly, they really only stay kind of underground, um, aka, or what in more sciencey term, they inhabit the rhizosphere. Okay, um, so because they also only live in the soil, they're not going to the surface to eat leaves and stuff like that. There's no really leaves underground like that. So um, they eat soil or the earth, which is called geophagus. Um, they usually prefer undisturbed habitats. So um, their habitats are kind of being pushed out and there's two types of worms, um, really, really big worms called the giant Oregon worm and the giant Australian worm. Um, obviously pretty self-explanatory where they're from. One was from in Australia, one was found in Oregon, and they were both really big worms, like multiple feet long, but we don't see them ever. So kind of like that SpongeBob episode with the really big worm, that's what these guys kind of were. Um, but yeah, um, so there's also small and medium-sized ones, but they prefer undisturbed habitats. Um, so with if there's any drilling um, or a lot of vibrations at the surface, they will burrow deeper and deeper and deeper, um, or they will try and move away from that habitat they don't really like. They can sense uh, vibrations, they f feel the vibrations, and they don't really like them. Um, so we're kind of due to the fact that the human influence has really uh, spread and been dominating, uh, we don't really see those guys anymore, and they are kind of um, potentially going to be extinct. And of course, it's really hard for us to try and find them, because if we try to go looking for them, they're just going to run away and go deeper underground, and it's really hard to dig. So, and then I, I would like to say that there's kind of three and a half of these ecological groups um, because, of course, there are some that don't just kind of just live in the litter, uh, the litter, um, leaf litter or the ground. So there's another group called epiendogeic, and these guys are just kind of an in-between um, group. Okay, so moving on from that, let's talk a little bit more about worms and their bodies. So worms have segments. If you look at an earthworm, you usually see the different ridges, the different segments. Okay, um, they have light sensitive cells, which kind of help orient themselves, whether they can tell whether they're up um, close to the surface. Obviously, they can feel they can sense the light when they're up there. Um, their major organs are predominantly close to their head. Um, they breathe through their skin. Similar trait, frogs do that as well. Um, something I think is really cool is they have five hearts. And here, we're gonna def uh, de debunk a myth right here. Worms, oh, sorry, I just hit, I'm holding a pen and I just hit my glasses with my pen. Thankfully did not hit my eye. Whew. Okay, anyway, um, so debunking this myth that worms do not always regrow if you were to cut a chunk off. They are not like lizards or uh, bugs, uh, you know, certain insects. They don't do that always, okay? So don't, don't just because if you, um, if you 
accidentally hurt a worm, don't just assume that he's going to regrow or become two worms. That's not how that works. Okay, anyway, um, kind of talking a little bit more about their life cycle. Um, they produce eggs that are kind of a little bit more like cocoons. And when they are born, they're born the way they will look for life. So they just look like a teeny tiny little earthworm. Um, there's no larval stage or anything like that. And okay, so we're going to go over a little bit more vocabulary. Um, so the first thing we're going to talk about, if you ever look at an earthworm, usually you can kind of tell where the head is um, in comparison to its butt, right? Because you usually see that thick little band um, that kind of distinguishes those two different main segments. Um, and that little discolorated or the band thing is a thick band of skin it's about a third of the way down their body and it is called the clitellum okay um some more vocab we have setae which are the tiny bristle-like hairs that they use to help anchor themselves in the ground um there's sometimes like you used to see these animations or these like little comic things or at least i remember seeing them of like a bird trying to take a worm out of a little hole in the ground and it's pulling and it's pulling well the reason it had to pull before it could actually get the worm was because of those setae that were anchoring them into the ground um obviously that's kind of like a little defense thing uh they have something called the uh heaven um colomic cavity colomic we're gonna go with colomic cavity a vessel that holds uh the mucus that it excretes during when it locomotion aka when it's moving around um they also will excrete that mucus if they are frightened which is another one of their um little defense mechanisms uh they have something called a gizzard which helps grind up their food and then their excretory organs all are called nephridia and then they have a primitive brain called a cerebral ganglion so there are some nice sciencey vocab words for you guys okay now for some more fun things Okay, so I'm going to be kind of going back and forth between um, some of my notes and the book because um, the book has some really, really awesome information. Um, so I already mentioned the excreting mucus. Um, so one thing, um, like I was saying, it's sometimes it's really hard for us to study um, worms. So it's a little bit hard to kind of estimate, um, but they believe that there's roughly one million earthworms per acre of land. Now, obviously, that number changes depending on where you are um it's kind of you'll find usually in areas where there's slightly more fertile soil is usually where more earthworms are um yeah anyway super cool fun fact about uh, earthworms is that they survived multiple mass extinctions so with the way the world is going i'm not really concerned about them i'm sure that there are going to be plenty of species that will have some you know will go extinct and um stuff like that but 
overall earthworms, they're not going anywhere. Uh, they've been around since uh, for about 250 million years, so they're not really, I don't think they're going anywhere. Um, another cool thing about them is that they don't suffer from many fungal or bacterial diseases, which is, you know, kind of, I don't know, was kind of surprising to me at least because, you know, they eat literally dirt. Um, but then thinking about that, that makes me then wonder maybe what is inside of them, what is in that gut of theirs that is allowing them to eat these bacteria and stuff and fungi that would, you know, harm other living beings but somehow doesn't harm them. Um, and then going off of that, there was an experiment that they talked about in this book. Um, and it had to do with something called the take-all fungus. And they used a certain species of earthworm in this experiment. And they were able to find um, that they removed the fungus that was wiping out these wheat and barley crops. So that was really cool. Um, so maybe there are different uses for earthworms that we can really start thinking about. So keep that in mind. Um, again, like I was saying, they're hard to study uh, out in the actual world, but they're also hard to study in labs. Uh, like I said, they have those light-sensitive cells, so they don't really like the light and they don't really like artificial conditions. They can tell the difference, which I think is really interesting, and I kind of wonder if that has to do with the fact that they can breathe through their skin, if they can maybe tell the difference, but who knows? Not me. Um, Another experiment that I wanted to talk about was done by uh, Darwin, and in this experiment, he was testing if they could make decisions. Um, so he was trying, he made little uh, fake leaves, little triangles that he would put on the ground kind of near where he would find little burrows, and he would observe the earthworms making their decision about how they wanted, from which point of the leaf they wanted to pull it in. Did they want to pull from the little stem? Did they want to pull from a specific point? Uh, so it was really interesting watching or reading about him watching uh, different worms make different decisions as to how they wanted to pick up a leaf. So now, unfortunately, I have some bad news as well. Uh, worms are not perfect. They can also be invasive species. Uh, most earthworms that you find in United States backyards are not originally from here. They're non-native species. Um, a lot of that has come from gardening and from uh, farming industry, live bait, stuff like that. Um, but something that is also important to note is that they're not necessarily good for our forests. And this is where they can kind of play a little bit more of an invasive role. Because as I was talking about when I was talking about the different worms, uh, right, I was talking about the epigeic worms, the ones that live on the surface with the litter, they eat the litter right? So when these kind of worms get introduced uh, to a forest, what they end up doing is they end up consuming all of the leaf fall that happened during in just one for that has consumed over accumulated, sorry, over the past couple of years, and they eat it in just one season. And then that ends up with a reduced layer of duff, uh, reduced duff, which is a layer of damp decaying matter that builds up over time 
in which then, of course, means that no small plants, no small little seedlings can kind of grow on that forest floor like we need them to, which kind of, not kind of, it affects the ecosystem. Uh, we put uh, the issue is that, you know, we are the ones that uh, usually are introducing these species when we're talking about these invasive species. How did they get there? They're worms, guys. They're not moving at a crazy rapid rate. Obviously, it has to do with us. Okay? Um, so, that being said, I'm going to use a quick direct quote from the book to explain a little bit more on the invasive process that we see with earthworms in forests. Okay, so that's one thing we're just starting to figure out. What role each species plays in this invasion? The epigeic worms seem to come in first and eat all the rotten leaves. Then we start to see the soil-dwelling endogeic worms, like this one. Then the anasic worms, anasic worms, however I said I pronounced that, um, like the nightcrawler, the ones that pull fresh litter into their burrows, come along behind them and take care of the stuff that hasn't even started to rot. All of these leaves will be gone by the summer. So that's what I'm talking about when I say that they are able all when these species get introduced they finish all of that in just one season and it is extremely detrimental to our forests okay now that we got some of the bad stuff over let's talk about some good stuff about worms okay um to first start off um you know we I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, I talked about worm composting, which has a slightly more fancy name called vermicompost. And it has been tested, it has been used before um, in agriculture, and they found that it increase, it does increase crop yield, yields. Not only does it increase yields, but it also reduces disease and crop damage. And it doesn't only do it for just one year, it does it for like four years, even if you just use it once. So another quote that I wanted to add to kind of back that up, uh, chemical fertilizers may feed the plant, but organic fertilizers feed the soil. And I think that's something that we're gonna start seeing a bit more in our agriculture uh, systems because uh, uh, soil matters. What's in the soil in the same way that you know, you say you are what you eat. It's kind of the same thing for plants. You know, the nutrients that they take up, they take up from the soil. The water that they take up, they take up from the soil. Therefore, if you feed the soil and make sure that the soil is healthy, it's much more likely that the plants and the crops that you grow are going to follow that same pattern. Um, and we kind of see this a little bit in um, looking back in our history, just kind of as humans, uh, they said that we actually have found high, some pretty high numbers. I think it said about eight to nine million worms per acre that they find in like the Nile Valley, um, which I think is insane. And, but if you ever took global history in high school, uh, in this country, you would know that uh, the Nile Valley was very fertile. It had a lot of fertile soil. And I kind of wonder if some of that not only kind of had to do with the, the worms that are there. Um, so something else that I think is very important to talk about is domestication. 
you know, uh, talking about human history, we see different animals uh, that we have domesticated, whether it's livestock that we have to the pets that we have in our houses to even potentially, I guess you could kind of even start to argue that zoo animals are slightly domesticated um, in some sense, I guess, um, due to the human interactions that they have, but we're not going to get into that. Anyway, um, but so are there any worms that we have domesticated? And that kind of loops back around to the vermicomposting. So we're going to talk really quick about a specific species of worm. Okay. It is called Isenia fetida. That is uh, its Latin name, its scientific name, Isenia fetida. And it is a great worm. Uh, to be domesticated. And actually at the end of the chapter um, of that she talks about this and she says maybe it has been domesticated all along. It's just been waiting for us to notice. So the really cool thing about this worm is the fact that it eats garbage. It loves garbage. It follows humans around because, well, I mean, look at us. We produce a lot of garbage. So if it follows around us around, it knows it has a basically endless supply of food. And kind of thinking back to, you know, our one of our big issues in this world is we've got a lot of trash. So uh, you see sometimes in the headlines, oh, a new caterpillar or a new worm has been found that eats garbage, that eats plastic. Perhaps this could be something like that. Uh, anyway, so uh, I mentioned before also that um, their guts are very good, do very well with fungus and, um, with bacteria. They don't really have too many diseases. And because of that, that also kind of plays in with the pollution and the trash thing. Part of the reason that there, some species are able to take up these big quantities of trash and this pollution and these nasty, nasty things that we produce. And they also, they took some human excrements and had the worms hang out, and the worms were able to change and, with their castings, uh, turn those solids into certified Class A biosolids that can be used as fertilizer. So, again, um, when we have these uh, other types of pollution issues, uh, sewage issues, just something to think about. Worms uh, can help us out a little bit more than we think. Um, okay. Uh, next, I want to talk. Okay, I'll just edit this out later. Okay, so worms can also act as powerful agents of change. And what I mean by that is they can, so they eat the soil. Well, sometimes when they're eating the soil, they end up eating things that are in that soil. Sometimes that can be seeds. So obviously, yes, their gut seems like a crazy place to uh, exist in, but when some of those seeds get out, uh, they're planted in some soil that is really, really good soil, as I've been 
talking about for a little while now. And this is important because if there are certain species, certain types of plants that perhaps the earthworms have a preference of, then those are going to be the seeds and the plants that you continue to see. And so you can kind of, you can make the argument that worms are engineering the ecosystem around them, which is really, really cool because I think we tend to think of earthworms as these really insignificant, fragile, gross, slimy things that live and eat dirt and all that other stuff, but they're actually really, really powerful. And so to finish up this episode, I want to end with uh, kind of emphasizing the theme of connectedness uh, that I mentioned, I know, in my first episode. So I'm going to use a quote from the book to kind of connect everything. Uh, Anytime a thread is broken, the web changes forever. Uh, I wanted to include this quote because uh, a couple weeks ago when I was, I'm a substitute teacher, and when I was in one of my elementary school classes and during science, we were talking about food webs, and we watched a Bill Nye, uh, the science guy episode, which was (laughs) really fun, and he was talking about food webs and how important it is that everything, even though it seems insignificant, everything is connected Uh, especially within the food web. And so this quote made me think of that, talking about the web changing forever. And I guess uh, even though, obviously, I don't think worms are going anywhere since they've been here for so long, but when we break these threads, these threads that we're kind of breaking uh, when we see, when we talk about climate change and the current events and stuff like that, uh, when you introduce an invasive per se, worms can be the opposite in that sense. Uh, It completely changes a forest ecosystem forever. You are losing certain types of ecosystems, certain habitats, uh, just because one little thing or a couple little things here and there are not surviving or we're tweaking them and it's changing the world. And I think we need to really wake up and take a look at that. So thank you for listening to another episode of Herbs Herbarium. I am your host, Caroline Herb. See you next time. Bye.